strategic leaders are those managers responsible for changes in strategy and implementing changes in strategy, or at least leading them primarily in the company. While they can be anywhere in the firm, in practice we think of strategic leaders as senior leaders. So strategic leadership is really an expression of how the dominant coalition of the firm, that is those at the top of the firm, impact organisational outcomes. And we can think of this in terms of the symbolism and social construction that they use to achieve that. The key points, though, is that this is why over time firms become reflections of their top managers. And this effect is crucial to understanding the role of strategic leaders in the achievement of strategic change. With this in mind then, strategic leaders play two key roles, a charismatic role and an architectural role. The charismatic role is really very much one of providing vision, providing direction, energizing and empowering employees, while the architectural role is very much about the structuring of the organization, the rewarding and the controlling of staff and so on and so forth. So both roles are fundamentally necessary to be an effective strategic leader. The message then is that although vision is important, it's not enough by itself to achieve change. We need to think about the alignment between the vision and the ultimate architecture of the organisation. So fundamentally then, this notion of firms coming to reflect their senior managers is crucial to understanding culture and the role that culture plays in both supporting or debilitating strategic change. Culture is not easy to define. In many ways, it captures the basic beliefs and assumptions about the organization and how the business defines itself, how members are expected to uh, behave. But because of this, it typically operates unconsciously and it defines in a taken-for-granted way the organization's view of itself. So in this sense, it's not easy to, from the outside or even from the inside, to be able to strictly look at the organization and break down the key elements of its culture. And this is in part because the diffusion of culture goes all the way from shared basic values through norms and artifacts to ultimately through to behaviors. While we can see behaviours taking place, it's very difficult to then dig down and understand what artefacts, norms and values are underpinning that. Because of that, it's fuzzy, it's hard to classify, and it reflects the unique history of a group of people interacting over time. This is also, of course, why culture survives people leaving the organisation, because it becomes embedded in not just routines and activities, but narratives, values, iconography, and so on and so forth. Fundamentally, then, the culture can cause the process of change to dramatically slow down. So if you have a culture that's very different to the kind of strategy that you're putting in place, then the consequences of that is that it slows down the process of strategic change. Now this squarely brings us back to the issue of managers and change. And again, just to be more specific, I mean senior managers and change. One of the more interesting ideas that we've seen in, in research over the years is something called the Icarus Paradox, the notion that for the senior manager, their greatest strength becomes their greatest weakness. Now, in this case, this has everything to do with the concept of time and experience. In many ways, the notion of time, the longer that a senior manager has been in tenure, been in post, they gain much more experience in the role and that experience can be highly valuable. The downside is, is that because of that greater experience, they tend to call on that experience as their first port of call for making decisions, for making change. In and of itself, this wouldn't necessarily be a problem, but there are other consequences of time and tenure in the role. 
And what research has shown is this tendency towards a dysfunctional effect over time, where the longer that a senior manager is in role, the more committed they become to their way or beliefs about doing business, about their beliefs of how the market and the industry operates, and the beliefs about how the business should function. Because of this, while they have high task knowledge, their task interest diminishes, their tendency to use a diverse source of information is is limited because of their experience. And their power in the role is very strong, such that new information rarely gets into their um, decision-making um, parameter. Now, because of this, what we tend to see uh, in research is that there is a decline. The longer senior managers are in, in role, the tendency is for there to be a decline in organizational performance. Early studies had this at around eight to 10 years before a dysfunction effect kicked in. But in industries where change is rapid, this dysfunction can happen as fast as 24 months, so in other words, two years. So this suggests that there is a dilemma um, facing senior managers. And in some of my own research, we found that there is, a, there is something of um, a chaotic scenario going on because a, senior, a new senior manager coming, coming in wants to make changes, wants to announce their arrival, wants to implement strategic change. But you have to slow down for a moment and ask the obvious question here, which is, well, if the new leader is coming in and has no knowledge of the organization, then it's very possible that those strategic change projects are little more than vanity projects and as a consequence may have little to no bearing on performance. And indeed, we find out as much because in our research, we found that while there's this initial sort of honeymoon period of a sort of lull, slight increase in performance, after a while, after time, the problems that were endemic in the business just come back to haunt it because they have not been adequately dealt with. And this, again, is sensible because if senior managers leave and are replaced by new um, outside members, then they don't have the knowledge of what exactly is going on inside the firm and what the, the conditions around that were. So the solution here then is to rely on managers elsewhere in the firm, rotate them around the firm so that we can then expand the pool of information that are informing our decisions and informing strategic change. Good leaders then should be adept at managing human capital inside the firm, but also adept at managing the relationships among themselves and the staff within the business. So this is very much an issue of social capital. We can think of this in terms of not just intra-organizational networking, but also ensuring adequate flows of communications to prevent unintended consequences or unintended problems in the process of making strategic change. And indeed, we have to bear this in mind carefully because when we are initiating change in an organization, we need to change the narrative of the organization. We need to incentivize employee, employees to buy into our change initiative. So this means we need to unfreeze the organization. We need a trigger event. We need something that will break the status quo in the organization. In doing so, the risk then is that we enter a phase of strategic drift while we change the organization, we experiment with new forms, we implement elements of our strategy. But as we know, in the environment changes, circumstance change, we encounter barriers. So there is this you know, oscillating period in which strategic drift is entirely possible. Then there comes a point where we need to refreeze the organization by solidifying what the new culture is and what the new direction of the company is about. So fundamentally then, 
good senior managers in managing human capital and in managing social capital and in utilizing not just vision but organizing the company effectively can minimize the dangers of strategic drift while at the same time powering towards implementing change effectively. So if we were to break these down very quickly into two types of key managerial challenges, it's very much about front-end managerial interventions to transform our desired goals into changes in the organization, knowing full well that in changing the organization, we will create two sets of outcomes, reinforcing outcomes, which are supportive of our strategy, and counteracting outcomes caused typically from resistance. And it's at that point that we also need to increase intervention. We need to increase how we support and manage and build our relationships with staff. One thing I want to emphasize, however, and just sort of more than anything, pause and just cause us to reflect a little bit here, is that it's often very easy to fall into a narrative where we are referring to people as obstacles to change. This is not necessarily the case. Even the concept of resistance has a problem attached to it because it's negatively connotated. So in this respect, while culture is largely invisible and we need to encourage people to come along on the change journey with us, often we encounter resistance. It's very easy to interpret that resistance as a negative thing. In other words, people being intransigent to change. On the other hand, it's entirely plausible that the employees that are resisting change are actually acting as a ballast in an effort to try and temper the actions and decisions of managers that may be either too rash or too quick or too sudden and therefore not necessarily a good thing for the organization. In other words, healthy discontent and constructive conflict can be a positive thing in the strategic change process and can force tenured managers to start breaking down their long-standing assumptions about how business is supposed to be done. In other words, people are not always obstacles to change. They can be very beneficial in this change process. And it's exactly why we need to think about broadening strategic leaders away from not just senior managers, but also towards middle management leaders and champions elsewhere across the business that can serve as change agents. So if I was to close with a set of points here, I think I would like to place emphasis on the importance of establishing a point of view, establishing a vision that's credible, coherent, compelling, thinking about how that vision can be translated through teams, through coalitions inside the organization, thinking about then of locating champions, finding people that can support the change program, but again, not causing blind adherence to strategy here. We're looking for a healthy discontent. We're looking for constructive conflict. And then fundamentally to help buy or achieve larger buy-in across the organization, we want to think about winning small, winning early and winning often so that we can reinforce that the strategy is taking hold, that the strategy is having effect and that the organization is moving in a positive direction. So to draw some conclusions then, we can say that companies should have a vision and a core ideology consisting of a core set of values that sets a purpose, that has an envisioned future. And this should hopefully evoke a passion and conviction across the organization to move and mobilize in that direction. 
Because of this, culture is very much the glue that unconsciously bind members of a group together, and culture can be both positive and negative in facilitating a change uh, program. But I would say what's crucial here is to understand legacy effects, understand the role of historical leaders. And if we do make leadership change, and sadly the reality is that if we are changing strategy and wanting to change structure, changing leaders is often a fundamental um, aspect of that, because it can create a break from the past. In many cases, I think an important point to appreciate is that time does not equal zero in most companies. Unless we are specifically looking at the case of a completely brand new startup, time does not equal zero. This means there are legacy effects, there are historical investments, there are learned patterns among employees about the expectations of managers, about how managers have behaved. So the obvious example being if we have a set of leaders that have been historically conservative, that have been historically anti-entrepreneurship and have typically um, penalized risk taking as opposed to support it, then any such leaders that suddenly create a narrative around entrepreneurship and risk taking and being um, rewarding autonomous behavior is simply not going to be viable. The employees are not going to believe it. And that's what I mean by time does not equal zero. There are history legacies issues here that are completely relevant to understand the relationship between strategic leaders, culture and achieving strategic change.